Good morning, and welcome to The Morning Fix. I'm Amy Shepard, and I'm here with my co-host, Julie Dye. The Morning Fix is a podcast series brought to you by the 510K Cafe. We interview medical technology leaders to discuss trends, innovations, and the future of marketing and communications in the medtech industry. One of the people we connected with because of South by Southwest this year is Afshin Mahin, founder of Card79, an industrial design firm that counts Ford, Amazon, and Lululemon among its clients. Afshin was on a panel at South by Southwest called The Fact or Fiction of Brain-Computer Interfaces, and he's here to talk more about that with us today and how his company supported the development of an innovative device for Neuralink, one of the companies Elon Musk founded. Welcome to the show, Afshin. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So this you are one of our first guests um, post South by Southwest 2022. So we're really excited to get your input on that. But first, we always love to hear more about our guest background and how you ended up where you are today. So if you could start there and give us a little history. Yeah, I'd love to. So I run Card79. We're a design studio based in San Francisco with team members uh, all over the world. Um, We focus on product design, product development. It can be both physical design, like industrial design, and also digital design, so UX, UI design. Um, Our expertise is designing products that are looking into the future, um, helping companies develop their next generation products. Uh, We work great with innovation arms inside companies. Uh, We work great with um, technology leaders inside companies, and we kind of bring their uh, technology and design to life in a way that people will embrace um, and will be uh, considered. Um, we often like to say we have a human-centered design approach to the work we do, um, but often that's difficult when the products never lived in the world, and so that's kind of our sweet spot. And what did you do before Cart seventy nine? Before Cart seventy nine, I was uh, I have always been in the world of design from from when I can uh, remember. Uh, I guess <laughs> depends on how far back you want to go. When I was in grade six, I wanted to design cars. So I was sketching cars and wanted to make floating flying cars. And lo and behold, 2022, we're almost there. But um, fast forward to my education, I was uh, I studied engineering and then I moved into design. I kind of knew that's where I was going to go. Um, it was a passion area of my, my own. After finishing up my design program at the Royal College of Art in London, I moved to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and started working for design consultancies. I worked for um, IDEO, which is a a uh, well-known design consultancy that's moved into everything from designing products to government systems to um, anything that kind of the, the, the realm of design thinking would include. And then uh, also worked in another design studio called Whipsaw, which was focused on a great place to uh, learn about um, proper product development, proper product design. Um, I did spend some time during my education working for um, MIT's Media Lab, um, looking at futuristic technologies um, while they were based in Europe. And that was a great opportunity to kind of blur the worlds of industry and academia a little bit. Um, but I definitely leaned harder into academia or into industry. Sorry, and then um, since then uh, I did a stint back in London. Uh, loved the the design culture there, and then and came back uh, and set up Card Seventy Nine in uh, on the West Coast uh, in two thousand fourteen. 
Ashton, you are one of the first guests in our South by Southwest 2022 series. What can you tell us about this year and what were your impressions? What were some of your favorite sessions or events? I will say it was my first South by Southwest, so I don't have a lot of uh, like experiences from previous years to measure up against. But it was my first uh, conference after not being at conferences for such a long time. And it was amazing. It was so great to be around other people with so many creative ideas, so many smart people. Um, the session we were hosting was uh, the fact or fiction of brain-computer interfaces. And we had, our panel was uh, some just stunningly intelligent people. We had Sergei Stavinsky, who's a professor of neuroprosthetics at Davis. We had Yuji Wang, who's a uh, BCI researcher at MIT. And we had uh, Nastasha Tan, who is a head of design at Aurora, which is a uh, autonomous vehicle company. And they were just on stage um, blowing my mind away with all the cool things that are possible within the world of brain computer technology and what was not. And kind of, um, I felt the session was really a great starting point for us, honestly. I was nervous just getting ready for it because we haven't been out doing this for so long. So my entire time in preparation for it was just like getting ready for it. And then after it was done, we had a chance to settle down, uh, go visit other sessions. Um, our studio also does, uh, we're, we're interested in anything that's at the forefront of new technologies and its implications for creative work. And this year, we've been doing a lot of really interesting work developing NFTs and by chance, South by Southwest had a lot of focus on NFTs this year. And so afterwards, we were just going from one session to another session, learning about um, what that world looks like. And, and it, it seems like South by Southwest has definitely embraced um, the world of blockchain and, and NFTs. And, and that was very interesting to see kind of the, the South by Southwest community coming together with the, the NFT community. And, and the, the, the sessions from there, I thought, were quite interesting and enlightening for us. Um, cause it was something we were interested in as well. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, Amy had, had mentioned that to me, you know, when we were doing our recap about South by it was, she said that there was so much going on in that NFT and cryptocurrency and, you know, the, the web three, um, kind of, you know, futuristic looking stuff. So, um, it is always interesting to see how those, you know, those things kind of evolve over time. I remember that Twitter actually launched at South by, I don't know, however many years ago that was, you know, so it's always interesting to see what the hot thing is for that year and how that, you know, if it becomes something more or if it fizzles, you know, over the, <laughs> the coming years. But, um, well, I'm so glad you got, had a chance to come down here. You have to make it an annual thing. Um, but you know, I really would love to hear about cards, how Card 79 played a really pivotal role in the design of a really mind-blowing um, product for, for Neuralink, um, which is one of Elon Musk's companies. And so can you tell us about that product and what exactly is a brain-computer interface? Yeah, I'd love to. So we were approached by the very smart people at Neuralink back in late 2018 to early 2019, and we'd done work in the space of uh, head-mounted technologies. We designed a pair of um, uh, sunglasses that had like a heads-up display in there, and we'd done a lot of research around what it meant to design to fit different head shapes, different head sizes, 
uh, with form factors that didn't exist before. So it wasn't a normal pair of sunglasses, it wasn't a headphone. There's nothing that you could take any ergonomic points of reference from. And with that experience, when we talked to the president of Neuralink, um, it was a nice kind of fit in terms of how we can complement the work they were doing. Um, so we were brought on when they were looking to develop their first uh, Link product, which was going to be an external um, implantable kind of wearable device that had an implantable component to it. Uh, and we were working with them. Uh, it, was a, it was a very interesting kind of mix of people we've never had in the room together. So we had our traditional electrical engineers, mechanical engineers. We've worked with them before, but we've never had them side by side with like a neuroscientist or a neurosurgeon who was explaining how you would cut away uh, and what, how you would insert a, the electro, electronics underneath the scalp and, and, and attach it to a part of the scalp. And, uh, and so it was like conversations we hadn't had typically. And it was, uh, it was very interesting to see how our knowledge was kind of getting extended. Um, there's also other kind of fun points in the process where we were sitting in a meeting with um, one of their neuroscientists and they started to play an audio recording of some clicking and we're like, and then he's like, that's what a neuron sounds like when it fires. And I was like, oh my God, I've, I've never thought a neuron made any noise. Um, but it was really fascinating to be able to be part of that process of adding those types of people in the design process. Um, and through that work, we were able to help them start to develop the link. Um, the work was pretty broad in terms of the way we were helping them understand the industrial design implications of this. Um, the, the primary market was focused on people with um, paralysis um, and being able to provide some sort of uh, tool. And this is a good chance for me to elaborate on what a brain-computer interface is. So brain-computer interface is a way where you're able to tap into brain signals um, at some level and translate them into electronic signals that you can then control a piece of technology with. Um, in some cases, it's theoretically bi-directional, but often it's a lot easier to be reading signals than to actually be driving signals into your brain. Um, there's a lot of variables around what makes a brain-computer interface either work well or not work well. Um, it, often it's how close you get to the neurons. Um, that was one of the primary hypotheses around Neuralink's approach, which was get as close as possible. So whereas often there's other technologies that are EEG based or on the outside of the scalp where you're getting um, okay signal, but often it's muffled by the skull. Um, with the Neuralink approach, they were actually going through a surgical operation, which would then place the electrodes, uh, these neural wires, um, directly into uh, the cortex of your brain, being able to pick up those signals um, at a very um, strong level, I guess. So working with them, uh, we were able to start to understand how to take this brain-computer brain interface technology and start to create a, a product out of it. Um, the technology has existed a long time before. Um, by a long time, I mean approximately a decade. There's been some great work being done by the, the BrainGate consortium around trying to create um, these, these kind of surgical implants um, using something called a Utah array um, that you could pick up the signal from, but they're kind of designed to be used just in the lab and they're attached to a big computer with a big heavy cable and there's, it's not something you would ever be able to use outside of that space. So uh, Neuralink's effort and where we were adding value was to see what it would look to productize that. So being able to work with them to understand 
how you'd be able to put this device on and off, um, how it would be attached to your head in a way that would be easy to um, handle, uh, taking into account the fact that it would have to be taken on and off quite regularly with the battery life that was associated with that size of a device. Um, being able to figure out how we would be able to locate it so it would fit different head sizes and ear sizes. Now, just to paint the picture, the, the first generation we worked on with them, it was meant to be as discreet as possible. The uh, president of Neuralink was very wise and said, hey, we don't want this to be like Google Glass. We want this to be something that can be kind of discreetly worn, doesn't have to uh, shout a lot of attention. This patient population doesn't need to be the center of attention. They just want to solve their problems. And so uh, hiding it behind the ear um, was the logical place. And there's a lot of good data we were able to pull from um, uh, hearing aids in terms of ergonomic uh, studies. Um, and so there's uh, some of the form factors that came out of that were, were learned from hearing aid technology as well. And um, yeah, that's uh, I can go on and on about this all day long, but basically that's what a, a brain-computer interface is, and that's how we help them on their first-generation product. Very cool. Um, well, this is definitely, you know, this is sci-fi kind of stuff, right? Um, you know, makes me think about the, you know, the movies, you know, that we've seen through the years of just, you know, all the things that are possible, those things are becoming more real today, right? Um, when you were talking about neurons and the sound of neurons, it kind of brought up an interesting question. Um, Amy and I were talking to somebody about how, um, you know, a lot of times in the past, when companies were doing clinical trials, they weren't, they were only thinking very linear, in a very linear way. And they were, you know, testing medical devices on men, um, and weren't thinking about women and other ethnicities and things like that. And so I'm just wondering, and I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but do different people have different neuron functioning and if so, was that factored into how this this device was designed? Um, so I will say, like I'm um, armchair neuroscientist. Like I don't right, have right, my, right. My, <laughs> so uh, my background is based on loving the topic, being around these people who are incredibly intelligent, and trying to glean as much information as possible from them. Um, what I have learned from the conversations is that there's, I guess, there's a uh, hypothetical scenario that can come out, which is once you start to, actually, I think uh, there's a couple of scenarios. There's one that's purely speculation from, a, from our standpoint, which is that the more you build an interface that kind of requires a specific type of in interaction with it to be able to enable it, the more you might start to kind of wane off other types of, of ways of inter interacting with that same interface. So I guess if you imagine working with a computer in the day we're in right now, everyone's got a, gotten good at typing, but we've forgotten how to handwrite. And so I guess the same could be applied theoretically to ne neurodiversity. If you have people who think differently, um, if you start to build an interface that requires a certain way to engage with it for it to work, then you're potentially starting to put in uh, kind of people who don't think in that same way or have that same process of analyzing or, or, or thinking um, would, would be a disadvantage. But the, the term thinking is such an open-ended word we're still trying to unpack. Um, right now, a lot of the research uh, te technology is based around tapping into the motor cortex 
and being able to control things with imagining you're moving something. Um, and so that's almost like that's a, it's a very mechanical, literally mechanical side of your brain. So it's, it's not higher cognitive thinking per se, where it's like, I'm going to go to the, I don't know, grab a drink from the, like the fridge right now. And I feel like a Coke. Um, it's like, I need to move my arm up, down, left, right. Um, and that's the, that's kind of the state of where things are at right now. But that question around like whether it's going to be discriminated against a specific population, it's still so early. It's, it's hard to tell where things are going to land there. Um, what we've done as a studio, we have started this thing called um, food for thought based interfaces. So food for thought and then uh, thought based interfaces. We're just trying to create these uh, videos that start to paint a picture of what future scenarios could look like. And the reason we did that is because we think that it's such an important topic uh, that if as designers, we don't start that conversation sooner than later, we're kind of not doing a service to what we're actually really good at and what's going to be important to be talking about if brain computer interfaces do take off. And if they do become in, in, in decades or, or years time, more commonplace, um, there will be a lot of questions, challenges, ethical issues that need to be unpacked sooner than later. And as designers, we're, we're kind of well-placed to, um, spark those conversations. Afshin, I wanted to talk a little in a little more detail. You mentioned it briefly um, earlier in the interview, but I wanted to talk about among patient populations, who can be helped by this technology the most? Sure. So uh, I'd be very cautious around my knowledge in this topic because as a design studio, we're great at designing user experiences, um, but we're not necessarily scientists. Um, but the, the topic, the, the patient population that's coming up the, the most within everything that I've talked to with our different companies that we work with in the neurotech space is people who have uh, paralysis who are unable to move their body but can potentially use their thoughts to control a cursor, a robotic arm, uh, type, communicate. There's a lot of work being done around being able to accelerate typing with being able to pick up different signals. And there is some research being done around uh, being able to pick up uh, your voice um, and turn that into words, um, even if you can't speak, your intended voice. Um, um, if, you, if you could speak, what it would sound like without speaking. Um, then there's also tapping into your motor cortex where you imagine moving your arm and then being able to turn that into handwriting to turn that into text. Um, but a lot of the work is just trying to... Un uh, unbottleneck uh, this patient population who has limited mo motor uh, capabilities to do things that they would otherwise be unable to do. You mentioned um, potentially, you know, some ethical considerations around this. Um, and this kind of brings to mind, I don't know if you saw the Oscar winning movie Coda, um, but um, there's been a couple of movies recently about the, um, the, the deaf community and how, you know, if they have children who are hearing, um, sometimes they don't necessarily um, think that's a good thing. And so in a way, they um, kind of sh sometimes will shy away from getting like a cochlear implant um, so that they can hear um, because they don't feel they need to be fixed. Right. And so I'm wondering if if you think that this technology will encounter any of those types of questions or any other ethical kind of concerns that maybe um, you guys had to think of as you were 
you know, thinking through this product? Yeah, that's a great question. I, some, something we've thought about regularly ourselves, um, and it's come up because we've the same conversation on cochlear implants is, is kind of pushed up against, I think, any assistive technology, whether it's brain-computer technology or whether it's a hearing aid or whether it's um, anything that's assisting you to compensate for what's perceived as a, as a disability within society. And it's funny you mentioned the cochlear implant. I still remember a conversation I had with a friend who is like, who, uh, this is pre-CODA, but it was talking about um, the actual quality of a cochlear implant, the fact that people who did have them didn't actually feel like they were hearing things very well as was like the quality of the cochlear implant is not perfect as well. And so it's almost like a, it's not, it's not, um, a, I guess a, a perfect solution to the problem just to make sure that that that's clear as, as well. But, um, looking at the, uh, the problems I think that these patients are faced with, I think it's, it is someone who's looking at this from the outside. It does feel like it's a order of magnitude of like how much their life will be improved. If you are, in a situation, and I think it's a, just a step back. It's like it feels like it's a case by case basis um, for each individual. If they feel like their life would be improved in a way that's meaningful to them through a technology like this, then all the power to them. Um, if they if it's not something they relate with or feel like it's going to be, uh, if they feel like they're perfectly happy in the, the life they're living right now, I think that's that's uh, that's should be respected. But I do think that. If from from what I've seen and heard from the, the patients and where they are in their quality of life in these scenarios, at least the ones that we've heard from so far, their mobility and their ability to live has been so restricted that anything that opens up that bandwidth to, to communicate with the outside world, to interact with the outside world, to have some ounce of independence feels like it's uh, a huge win. But I, uh, I also could see conversations being very much on that gray line depending on where where things are in terms of their capabilities yeah that makes sense i think in with many with many technologies in life there's always that that great reward and also that risk and mm-hmm. um i i, I I, think I, on behalf, I speak on behalf of Julie. We are so thrilled to speak with you today, and thank you for educating us on this incredible um, technology. It seems like it has a ton of potential. Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot for having me. I totally appreciate it. Well, we have one more fun, fun question that we always ask all of our guests, and is since you are here on The Morning Fix by 510K Cafe, uh, morning coffee themed <laughs> uh, podcast. We'd love to know what you do for your morning fix. My morning fix, I've got to say, it's it, I go with tea. I brew a. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a faux pas when it comes to coffee, but uh, I, I do a tea where I. We have this special. Um, it's called a samovar, and it's basically a way you brew tea where you boil the hot water. It's like a special contraption, um, and uh, you boil the hot water, warms the tea up on top of it, and you can kind of sip it for a couple hours over the morning. So that's my morning uh, ritual. I love that. I should retract my statement. It is a warm beverage. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for including me. That's great. Yes. So we have, we've had many tea drinkers, many coffee drinkers, many soda drinkers, water, uh, hot water with lemon, dog walkers, um, wordle players. So it all it's all inspiring and everybody, we, you know, everybody has their own thing to, uh, 
to get their day started on the right foot. So thank you. We appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me as well. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Afshin. And thank you to all of our listeners. And uh, be on the lookout for more uh, exciting conversations from MedTech leaders.